So I stirred up a little controversy last week in regards to Bob Brenly's reference of Marcus Stroman's do-rag during a broadcast of the Arizona Diamondbacks and the New York Mets. And while some of the backlash I can understand, I'm going to make four direct points about this. And maybe not with the intention of dropping, but with the intention of keeping the discussion going. First thing that comes up is the reference of a do-rag is that racist by itself. And I completely unequivocally agree that it's not. You can mention a do-rag. You can comment on the fact that somebody's wearing a do-rag. And the mere mention of it does not imply any sort of racial undertones. Nor does the mention of a do-rag by itself warrant somebody to lose their job. It doesn't warrant somebody to be canceled. It doesn't warrant for that person to be judged as a bad person just because they mention it. So that's point number one. What it does, though, in the way that Bob Brenly used it during the broadcast, it lessened the class of what Marcus Stroman was to be considered. He didn't compliment Marcus Stroman on a do-rag. He, his reference to Tom Seaver was that Tom Seaver would never lower himself to wear such a thing. And it's something that Bob Brenly acknowledged himself. Now, if you don't see that, listen, I'm not here to tell you how to, how to believe, what to believe. I'm not here to change the way that you are. That being said, can hurt somebody could take them back in the way that they feel we were talking about the progress of society to be more inclusive i do believe that it is a step back and the last point about it is bob brenly either by himself or through his team and the broadcast uh, entity that he works for acknowledged that it was wrong bob brenly himself apologized and that could be one of two things. Bob Brenly could believe that what he said was wrong and he is seeking counseling. He's seeking some sort of sensitivity training, which he's going to go away, whether it's an impatient thing or, or not. He is going to try to become a better person in his mind, but he wants to be more sensitive about stuff like that. So in that regard, he is acknowledging what he said was wrong. And once again, it's not a matter of the fact that he mentioned do-rag on the air. That by itself is not a racial slur. That by itself is not something that you know should be stricken from the English language and the person should be judged just because they, they mere took the, the time to mention that. But it was the intention whether it was intentional or not, and it was a, whether it was verdant or inadvertent, it did put a person down, classified them as less than what they intend to be, and was absolutely not used as a compliment. Now, over the last couple of years, you've heard a lot of attention brought to team names. And it is, it is something that is going to, over time, get more discussion by the end of this year, whether it's the start of next year, the Cleveland Indians are going to go by a different nickname. 
You've heard about what's happened with the Washington football team. That's something that over time, you know, kind of kind of built itself up because of the sensitivity of their nickname Redskins, which is something that they've carried with them as part of their franchise forever. Now, I'll admit, when it was announced that the Redskin nickname was going to be dropped and they were going to be known as the Washington football team, my initial question was, what purpose does this serve? In other words, who exactly is offended by the Native American nickname? And I, and I was honest about this. My, my thought was not to put anybody down, but is there a large group of Native Americans that are offended, appalled, and feel like they are not being treated fairly because this nickname is there for a football team? Do most people not pay attention to it? Or those that do and may understand the roots of the meaning, are they really that offended? And these were all points of contention that I brought up once this name change was first proposed and then eventually followed through on. Now, I've kind of moved myself towards the acceptance of it. And the fact that it, it, the, the fact that it could be offensive by itself may not be enough to change the name. But then I say, if it does offend, then why Why not? If it offends even a handful of people, then you change it to a different nickname that's not offensive. Is that really setting us back at all? Is that making us oversensitive as a society? And those were all things that I think had to be considered. And as you watch the Cleveland Indians who eventually will be the Cleveland baseball team, eventually will be referenced as the Cleveland whatever. Once that changes, I don't think we're necessarily worse. I don't think that we're necessarily oversensitive because of that. And if you, you follow the movement at all, whether you agree with it or disagree with it, whether you think that we have been overreactive and oversensitive and all the different things that we've looked at and changed, I agree that there is a certain line that we don't want to cross. But at the same time, it has made us stronger as a society in regards to being inclusive, in, in regards to being understanding of all the differences that we go out there and say. Now, like I said, you could throw comments my way and point out every single one of the stereotypes you may have about me. But going back to point three of what I mentioned in regards to the Bob Brenly comments about Marcus Stroman, it speaks more about you than it does me. It says that those stereotypes that you're denying were even put in there in regards to Bob Brenly's reference to Marcus Stroman are not existent. Well, it's kind of hypocritical when you go out there and you throw regular stereotypes at anybody else. One more point I do want to make, and I, I do think this is this is important to bring up. Now, Marcus Stroman is very active when it comes to social media. Marcus Stroman has his own charity organization. He's a college graduate. He, he, he feels that he can use his popularity in a way to express how he feels. 
Now, you on the other side may not agree with Marcus Stroman's point of view. You may not care for Marcus Stroman. And I don't think that by itself makes you a racist. So I think there is a little bit of a point of contention there. If you don't like Marcus Stroman, it doesn't automatically make you a racist. But when you use, whether it's his choice of dress, whatever it is that he wears on his head, as a way to say that you are part of a higher class than he is, then you are crossing racial lines. And, and there's nothing else that I could really say about that. I'll follow every comment and comments that are made that have reference, I'm going to acknowledge and reply to. And I think the best comment that was made was the fact that if you don't like Marcus Stroman, who happens to be a black man, that doesn't make you racist. And that, to me, out of all the comments of the last video, was the one that won me over. I thought that was the best comment by a mile. But as we progress and we're going to eventually see the Cleveland Indians go by a different nickname and perhaps it'll expand to the NFL with the Kansas City Chiefs, maybe in Major League Baseball with the Atlanta Braves. You've seen it happen multiple times when it comes to college sports teams. The St. John's Redmen, the Syracuse Orange Men, who are now known as the Red Storm and the Orange, respectively. Do we necessarily consider ourselves better because of it? I think that we are more understanding now than we've ever been before. And I thought the part of the discussion in regards to the show last week that went the longest was the difference. The difference in just making a comment and how a comment, a regular description of you know, something that could be put on somebody's head, whether it's pulling hair back or whatever it is, by itself is not racist, but if it's used to describe that person as a lesser human being, it absolutely has racial undertones. I want to get into something that I enjoy talking about more, and that's the world of sports. And I'm a football fan. I have a specific team that I root for. It's the Tennessee Titans. So they were in the news last week. They ended up acquiring Atlanta Falcons wide receiver Julio Jones, setting up a pretty good duo with him and A.J. Brown on each side of the field. And I was thinking, going back to my days as an Oilers fan from Warren Moon and a run-and-shoot offense of the 1990s, I didn't quite go back to Earl Campbell. I don't Remember Wally Lem and Lou Rimkus and the 1960-1961 AFL champions, which, by the way, were the first two years of the AFL. So I don't remember the Oilers that far back. But going back to the history of that franchise, which, of course, started in 1960, I've composed a list of the greatest wide receivers in the history of that franchise. And the question is going to be, if you're Julio Jones... How much do you have left? Certainly the expectation is the next two, two to five years, Julio Jones should be performing at a high level. He's coming off of an injury last year where he only had 771 receiving yards, played in only nine games, but prior to that was probably in the top three and at certain points the number one wide receiver in the entire National Football League. So 
when it's all said and done and his run with the Tennessee Titans is over, where exactly will he rank? Well, there's a wide receiver that for a while was considered the pinnacle when it came to the position. And when he retired, he was the all-time leading receiver in regards to catches and yards. And he spent his entire career with the Seattle Seahawks. Steve Largent, initially, was drafted and signed by the Houston Oilers. Now, the Oilers ended up moving him to Seattle, where he became the best in the game. And Jerry Rice himself, who is considered the greatest all-time when it comes to pass catcher and wide receiver told me during the weekend of his Hall of Fame inductions in Canton, Ohio, that Steve Largent was one of his biggest influences. He was the player that he tried to emulate when he was out there on the field. And imagine the Oilers of the late 70s, of 78 and 79 going into the 1980s with Earl Campbell and Steve Largent both on the field at the same time. Now, that never happened. But it's worth noting that Steve Largent was originally signed and drafted by the Houston Oilers. Another receiver that you think of when you think of greatness, certainly because of his place in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, is Charlie Joyner. Charlie Joyner dominated for many years as the wide receiver for the San Diego Chargers. But prior to that, started his career with the Houston Oilers. He never really got off the ground and obviously would not become as renowned and well-known until his days with the San Diego Chargers. So then I think of some other receivers, maybe not as well-known as Charlie Joyner and Steve Largent. Jim Burney had some pretty good years in the 1970s. Not worthy enough to be an all-time great, but was decent, is, is worth mentioning. Billy White Shoes Johnson is probably known more because of his nickname being, you know, a, a certainly a much better kick returner and punt returner than he really was a wide receiver. And that's why he, he doesn't end up ranking towards the top of the list. So I look at Charlie Frazier. And pardon me for a second as I try to multitask, which, you know, history has proven that I'm not very good at. And I think it's Charlie E.Y. He played from 1962 to 1970 with the Oilers and had a a thousand-yard season. Late 60s, mid 60s, not as much throwing at a football at that time. Caught a couple passes from George Blanda. Was a decent receiver. Like I said, known pretty much for one big year. And I think of Drew Bennett, who was kind of more of a contemporary receiver. Had some good years with the, with the Tennessee Titans. And like I said, we're taking a, a couple seconds to pull Drew Bennett up here. Um was targeted over 100 times back-to-back seasons, had the one season where he caught 80 balls for 12-47 and 11 touchdowns. When when the Titans were were good, they were a playoff team. So he was a number one receiver for them for a little bit. 
And like I said, we're going to scroll our way down. Kevin Dyson, who's known for the catch he made in the Super Bowl and being stopped at the one-yard line, was a good receiver. Was probably not a number one for that long. Um, I think he, he, play, he played second fiddle to a receiver that we'll talk about in a little bit. But as well as, well as tight end Frank Wycheck. And I'm talking about wide receivers, which means somebody like Wycheck, as dominant as he was, and the fact that he probably was the best tight end in the history of the Oilers slash Titans, is not on this list. That being said, you look at Dyson, who, who had a couple really good years, was targeted over 100 times twice in the two seasons that he started all 16 games, caught some touchdowns, but once again is going to be known for catching that pass from Steve McNair and being tackled at the one-yard line as time expired in the Super Bowl loss to the Los Angeles Rams. So as we start to get into a little bit into the meat of the top receivers to ever play for the Oilers slash Titans, there's a receiver by the name of Bill Groman who played in the early 1960s for the Oilers. His first season which was the first season of the Houston Oilers in 1960, he caught 72 balls for 1,073, I'm sorry, 1,473 yards. And looked like he was on his way to bigger and better things. He had another 1,000-yard season in 1961, coinciding with the Oilers' back-to-back AFC championships in 1960 and 1961. Unfortunately, caught just 51 passes in the next four seasons, three of whom were with Denver and Buffalo and was out of the league before he turned 30. But his first two seasons make you think that he was going to be one of the best receivers, not only with the Oilers, but in the history of the National Football League, which at that time we had the AFL and the NFL. He's certainly worth a mention. Number eight, Ken Burrow. And Ken Burrow played in the latter part of the 1970s, right? Hold on. We're going to pull Ken Burrow up. Yeah, so 1970 to 1981, Ken Burrow, who's still with us, had a 1,000-yard season in 1975, 900 yards receiving the following year in 76. One of Dan Pastorini's favorite targets played with Earl Campbell in the latter part of the 70s before hanging it up after starting 16 games in 1981, he's certainly worth mentioning. Number seven is the guy that's going to be on the other side of Julio Jones catching passes from Ryan Tannehill in his upcoming season, A.J. Brown. A.J. Brown has emerged as a very good receiver, one of the top pass-catching receivers and route runners in the NFL this year, is about to enter his third season. He went to Mississippi was taken in the second round, 51st overall in the 2019 draft. Has had back-to-back 1,000-yard seasons. Is kind of on pace, on that Bill Groman pace. If he fizzles out, he'll probably be in the same place as Bill Groman. But right now, A.J. Brown, I think, is the seventh best wide receiver ever to play for the Houston Oilers slash Tennessee Titans. Number six, Tim Smith. Tim Smith. Played for the Oilers from 1980 to 1986. 
was taken in the third round of the 1980 draft. Um, kind of sat for a couple seasons, was a special teams player before emerging in 1983 and 1984. Back-to-back 1,000-yard seasons. But really only played those three seasons and was kind of out of the league by the time he turned 30 as well. Didn't play a lot in his 20s. Had 83, 84, and 85, and then kind of that was it. But those seasons were pretty solid. Moving on to number five. And I start to think of the run-and-shoot offense, the Houston Oilers of the latter part of the 1980s and the early 1990s, and one of my favorite players that I got to see play, and that, of course, is Ernest Givens. Ernest Givens dominated for probably the better part of a decade. His first season was 1986, had a great connection with Warren Moon. Uh, 1,000-yard receiving season, but also one, two, three, four, four times had over 900 yards receiving, caught 571 balls in his career for over 8,000 yards, was one of the, the dominant receivers on that run and shoot offense Oiler team. And then I, I moved next to his teammate, Haywood Jeffries. There was, like we talk about Julio Jones being on one side, A.J. Brown on the other side. There was a time where Ernest Givens was on one side and Haywood Jeffries was on the other side. To me, Jeffries was the more dynamic receiver. Um, he, he was the probably, you know, while both of them would be considered big play receivers, I, I think he was targeted a lot more by Warren Moon, especially in the early part of the 1990s. But, I mean, to have Jeffries and Givens on the same squad was, was amazing. And another receiver that gets kind of forgotten about because he came back a little bit earlier, and that was Drew Hill. Drew Hill started his career in the late 1970s, and of course we lost him in 2011, but when he came over from the Rams in the mid-1980s, he, he became the, the prime target of Warren Moon for a handful of seasons. Now, 1991, he's in his mid-30s already, spent his last couple of years with the Atlanta Falcons as the Oilers decided to go a little younger, but I thought, Hill was probably better as far as a big play receiver, as far as a route runner. I think a guy with the the amount of yards that he averaged per catch uh, was probably number one with Gibbons and Jeffries being kind of two and three. But remember, 1991 was Hill's last season with the Oilers. So, Givens and Jeffries had a chance to become more stars once Hill left. But I like Drew Hill, and I think he's one of the best that they've ever had. Number two, Charlie Hennigan. And imagine on, on two sides to have Charlie Hennigan and Bill Groman. And that's how the Oilers ended up winning, Super, uh, not Super Bowls, but AFL championships prior to the days of the Super Bowls. Charlie Hennigan was a dominant receiver. And his first year was 1960. And I want to pull up his numbers real quick. Sorry for being a little bit behind. You could you could talk about this in the comments if you want to. Uh, I could certainly handle that. But Charlie Hennigan played from 60 to 66. 1,700 receiving yards in 1961. 
1,500 yards in 1964, really was the first star receiver that the Oilers ever had. And if I'm going number one, the greatest wide receiver in the history of the Houston Oilers slash Tennessee Titans franchise, I'm taking Derek Mason. And Derek Mason was Steve McNair's top target during the time that they played together in Tennessee and had one, two, three, four thousand yard seasons with the Titans. Had ended up having another four thousand yard seasons with the Baltimore Ravens, which I don't think he gets enough credit for. Overall in his career, he played himself what? 14, 15 seasons and had a great career. Probably isn't Hall of Fame worthy, but certainly, you know, when you look at all the record books for catching balls and receiving yards and the wide receiver position, if Julio Jones started his career with the Tennessee Titans, he'd have a long way to go to catch up to Derek Mason. So was thinking about the NBA playoffs as they're set up and two of the more dominant players that are out there right now are not the number one in two players taken in the 2018 draft. And one of the players, Luka Doncic, his season and the season of the Dallas Mavericks ended in a tough seven-game series against the Los Angeles Clippers. And I think of Doncic the entire time was unequivocally the best player on the court. Kind of reminded me of LeBron James before he started winning championships with the Miami Heat. You know, the Cleveland Cavaliers were a good team, but they were nothing without LeBron James. If LeBron James wasn't on those early Cavalier teams that were in the playoffs, you can make a case that that probably wasn't a playoff team. Take Luka Doncic off the Dallas Mavericks, and the Mavericks aren't a play, playoff team. When they needed somebody to step up, Christophe Porzingis, um, you know, Tim Hardaway Jr., and the likes, there was nobody there to kind of become that second man with the Mavericks. And I think the Mavericks, if they're looking at their offseason and what they want to get better at, maybe they could trade some depth for a star player, another star to be next to Doncic to make sure that the team and everything that happens on that court doesn't have to go completely through him. That being said, Luka's become one of the best players in the game. He could have won the MVP this year. Nikola Jocic of the Denver Nuggets was deserving. A handful of other players were in the discussion. But as far as the most valuable to his team, you take Luka off the Dallas Mavericks and that team would not be any good. And another player that has ended up emerging this postseason is Trey Young of the Atlanta Hawks. The Atlanta Hawks, a team that seemed to be going nowhere with Lloyd Pierce as their coach, all of a sudden fired him and replaced him with Nate McMillan. And you look at where the Atlanta Hawks are as far as being the fifth seed, beating the Knicks in the first round. Uh, prior to the coaching change, thought was that the Hawks were kind of looking for their position in the lottery. Who are they going to take in the draft next year to pair alongside Trey Young? Well, Trey Young himself has taken major steps to become a star in this game. Is he exactly Steph Curry? Nah, I, I wouldn't consider him there yet. But his performance in the Knicks series, 
and the fact that he has stepped up in the, in the Philadelphia series so far, even though I still think the 76ers are going to take that series, you, you look at one of the emerging stars in the game. And it kind of brought me back to the 2018 draft. And I've done this in time with some of the NFL drafts, some of the MLB drafts. You know, you're going back to say, hey, if you had the draft to do over again, what player would you take? And there's always differences in regards to players, whether they get hurt, whether they just don't end up living up to the hype. So many different things could happen. But I'm extremely intrigued by the 2018 NBA draft because Luka Doncic, who went number three overall to the Atlanta Hawks, and Trey Young, who went number five overall to the Dallas Mavericks, are absolutely the top two players that are in that draft one right now. And in fact, you could say they're 1A and 1B. If Phoenix and Sacramento were had won the lottery and had the number one and two overall picks, even though the Suns end up, ended up taking DeAndre Ayton out of Arizona, Ayton's been a good player for them. The Suns are doing great things. The Suns got a very good chance of making it to the NBA Finals and maybe competing for a championship this year. And a lot of it has to do with the emergence of DeAndre Ayton. Devin Booker is probably more of a key. Chris Paul is probably more of a key. But DeAndre Ayton was a very good pick. You can't say that that was a disappointment. You can't say that the Suns made a mistake by selecting DeAndre Ayton number one overall in that draft. That being said, like I said, you jump in the DeLorean, crank it up to 88 miles an hour, and you know what you know now, and you have a chance to take any player in that draft number one overall, I think you'd be silly to not take Doncic. You'd be silly to not take Trey Young. And I do think there's a little bit of a debate available between the two players. I, I can see why you'd make a case for Trey Young. Trey Young is the more score, is the better scorer. Trey Young is the guy that could take the game in his own hands and go up there and win it by scoring 40 or, or 45 or 50 in a game, hitting a shot from anywhere on the court. Luka Doncic, probably a better overall player. I, I think he plays better defense. He's a better rebounder. And could, could pretty much do everything. So if I was the Phoenix Suns, and like I said, not knowing what you know now, even, even knowing what you know now, knowing that Aiton is going to be there with Devin Booker and you get a star player in Chris Paul and all of a sudden the Suns aren't losing games anymore. They're one of the best teams in the Western Conference, let alone the entire NBA. i take Doncic. i take Trey Young. I, I might even take Colin Sexton over DeAndre Aiton. Now, that might be a little bit of a stretch. You say, hey, what has Colin Sexton done since he's joined the NBA? He was taken by the Cleveland Cavaliers. The Cavaliers are going to have higher expectations for this upcoming season. They certainly haven't won very much with Colin Sexton. But Colin Sexton is a legitimate scorer. I think you pair him with another legitimate scorer and a couple more role players, and I think you could win. Now, I think there's more of a debate between Sexton and Aiton. Like I said, Aiton has been great. If you took Aiton over Sexton, if you were reseeding this draft, I wouldn't have any issue with it. That being said, I think when you're looking to take a player in the lottery, you're looking at scoring first. You're looking at somebody that's going to go out there and average 25 to 30 a game 
and be able to do it at the highest stage. A lot of people can do that in college. A lot of people can do that in high school. Can you do that? Can you average 25 to 30 a game amongst the best players in the entire world? And Colin Sexton can do that. And it's not a knock on DeAndre Ayton. But if I'm looking for a scorer, which I think if you're a bad team and you're in the draft lottery, you're there for a reason, you could probably use some punch. You want that score. You want Doncic. You want Trey Young. I think you'd be more interested in Colin Sexton than DeAndre Ayton. And like I said, it comes across like I'm knocking DeAndre Ayton, but I think at this point, this state of the game right now, even though the Suns could win an NBA championship this year, I think DeAndre Ayton is the fourth best player in that 2018 draft, or at least the fourth best out of the top 10 players that were selected. So if I'm going to move on, I'd probably take Mikael Bridges you know, right now after Ayton. And you look at the fact that Bridges out of Villanova, I'm sorry, yeah, was taken by Philadelphia and traded to the Phoenix Suns, is a starter on the court alongside DeAndre Ayton. They had a good draft. I mean, to get Ayton and Bridges in that same draft, you tell me that that wasn't a major reason why they have stepped up and become one of the better teams in the National Basketball Association. So I may it may sound like I'm knocking Ayton by saying he's the fourth best player out of the top 10 of the 2018 draft, but Bridges, who was taken number 10 overall by at first Philadelphia and then traded to Phoenix, is right there with him. Wendell Carter, I look at him and I, I, I believe that there's, there's still a ceiling that he hasn't hit yet. And that's why I look at him and you know his time with the Chicago Bulls didn't work out so well and he really hasn't gotten out of the 10, 11 points the game average over the course of his career was traded in the in in the uh, the Vujicic trade with with Orlando. So he's playing for Orlando now. I, I believe that this is a ceiling that really hasn't been hit yet. I think he's going to become a better scorer. In fact, if I was playing fantasy basketball and I was looking for a player that I could take later on in the draft and they could emerge as a big-time scorer next year, Wendell Carter might be that player. Now, I don't know what led to his lack of success and maybe a little bit of a falling out with the Chicago Bulls, but I could see him a fresh start with a fresh season with a second team. I could see him going out there averaging 20-plus a game. So I like Wendell Carter. I think his potential is even higher. Uh, Marvin Bagley Jr., still with the Sacramento Kings, taking number two overall. He's been a little bit of a disappointment. It, you know, sometimes uh, you know somebody speaks out, and as we started the program talking about Marcus Stroman, Marcus Stroman speaks his mind. He lets you know how he feels, and there is an unfair labeling to it. Whether that labeling is completely racist or not, it's it's put out there to kind of knock that person that is more outspoken, kind of to knock them down a little bit. And that's why I was talking about the racial undertones to the do-rag reference made by Arizona Diamondbacks broadcaster Bob Bremlin. Now, Marvin Bagley, things have not worked out as well with the Sacramento Kings. 
He's averaged 14.5 points a game in his three seasons in the NBA. He's missed some time because of injury. And you hear him speaking up about certain things. Now, does that make him a malcontent? No, but I do think this year as it's coming up, you're talking about one of the players that were, were very much hyped when it came to the, the 2018 draft. I think he does have a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. He has a little bit of something to prove this year. Right now, the number two overall selected player is number seven in regards to the top ten players that were taken in that draft. Mo Bamba, I got at number eight. Jaron Jackson, number nine. And Kevin Knox, number 10. And I just think those those are players still playing in the NBA, still have some ceilings, still have uh, maybe a level to get to, but just haven't proven it yet. I do want to thank everybody for tuning in to the Past Ball Show, brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by St. Aloysius Church in Jackson, New Jersey. And if you are interested, you can listen to me on The Contender. I provide a show every week for The Contender. Um, for those that don't know, it, it's a it's a regional sports network uh, based right now in Washington D.C. and in Chicago, and giving you an all day worth of regional local sports talk. My show called Contending Baseball focuses on the history of baseball and issues in the game that we see today. So you can check it out there. Of course, you can check out everything that I do on. The my website johnpielli.com past ball show could be fi- found on iTunes which is of course Apple Music Amazon Music, Spotify and my videos weekly on YouTube we'll be back with you next week God bless you and as always I'll see you on the other side